Part three. <clears throat> so I'm going to start this one with a story from many years ago when I was on a horse farm in Spain, which sounds way more glamorous um, and sexy than it was. But I was technically on a horse farm in Spain. And it was my first time seeing dozens and dozens of horses together in this huge field that was, um, you know, gated, but it's, but that's just huge. And there was just so many horses in it. And so I was standing there in front and I was <laughs> supposed to go in and feed them with like no instruction whatsoever. It was actually a pretty unsafe, uh, situation I was put in, but, um, I could sense that they were, you know, wild creatures and huge, uh, very strong. And so I was taking my, my time and I wasn't in the pen yet. And I, as I stood there and kind of just watched them, I saw this one mare, uh, they were all mares, uh, that was kind of like on the side by itself. It was like just kind of along, along the right. And all of a sudden it just took off running like this vigorous bursting sprint just yeah and it didn't seem spooked it, it you know it was like it like a kind of like fuck yeah woohoo check this out so me and this girl that was um standing next to me we just like stared at it you know watched it do this thing it felt clear to both of us that this horse was like deeply enjoying just getting to do essentially what it was built to do. Engaging all of its muscles, synapses firing, neurochemicals, all in perfect balance to make that perfect movement possible. I think that just like that horse, we're also designed, you know, through millions of years of evolution, we're designed to be able to, in a complex system, soak up the exquisiteness of the vibrant world that we get to inhabit. So one of my current hypotheses is that our virtual world, it has severed this relationship with our bodies. And I believe that, well, this hypothesis is that this severed relationship is one of the causes of the increasing rates of stress and burnout, anxiety, depression that so many of us are experiencing. Because when I think about it, you know, I wouldn't put a horse in a white room for eight to 10 hours a day, like in front of a laptop watching horse videos, you know, maybe once a day I take it outside to run in a few circles and then put it back in some more horse videos. I wouldn't do that and expect that horse to be mentally stable. In fact, I would say if that horse started losing its hair, became aggressive, cranky, violent even, I wouldn't be surprised. 
So this, I think, is where we left off from part two. In Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, when she talked about how might we double down on being human, not being avatars, not being productivity machines, how might we double down on being human? It means maybe first reestablishing that relationship with our bodies. And so when I was first reading this, I started wondering, what percentage of my own day do I spend treating my body as a mere tool? A tool to scroll, a tool to type, a tool to stare at flat screens. What percentage of my day? And for a few days, I kind of just sat with this question and, and was kind of tracking, and it was a lot. This is bananas because even if we look at our bodies purely scientifically, to start with, we have something like 14 to 20 senses. Scientists can't even agree on how many senses we have. And not only can they not agree on the accounting, those senses are still being mapped. We don't fully understand them. And one of the things that scientists can't yet map, but everyone alive can attest to being a real thing, is what it feels like to tune into those senses. Meaning, okay, so if it's safe to do so, close your eyes. And if you're driving, you know, and you can, maybe pull over. Pause, like pause the player, pull over. And then restart when you're pulled over safely. Okay, but if you can, if you're walking around, just stop. No one's going to notice. If you're at home cleaning, whatever, pause. Just stop. Close your eyes. Breathe. And breathe again. When I do that, my shoulders instantly go back because I realize I had them like scrunched forward. So feel free to recalibrate your body. And if it feels comfortable, stretch one tiny part of your body. So for me, I'm just going to do my like neck. I'm going to move my neck like kind of up and then to the right. As much as it feels comfortable and then move it slowly to the back and then slowly to the left and then I'm going to do it again and this time I'm not going to talk you through it you can just do it with me you can do this with your wrist too wrists can be similar but this time I'm not going to talk through it so that you get to try out with me 
tuning into what that feels like. Like what are your muscles and tendons and bones feel like when you do that? So let's do it again. Like, I don't know about you, but if an alien, you know, landed and was like, what do you do? And I'm like, stretching my neck. And it's like, what does that feel like? I, like, I wouldn't quite have words for that. It just feels like, (sighs) yes. And sometimes if I do it twice or if I'm stretching apart, now, since I've read, you know, about this stuff, it also feels like there's an extra depth to that reestablishing a connection with my body because I'm kind of newly aware of what beautiful fucking animals we are. So, back to the book. (laughs) At the time, I then had a new theory, which was, okay, so it's not the vacation breaks. It's not five-minute work breaks. It's not the yoga, self-care. It doesn't really matter what activity is on my calendar these things weren't healing my inner sadness because it was quite easy during those activities to stay distracted from this feeling, from this wonder. I think it was tuning in to my body's experience of an activity that maybe could start healing some of that inner sadness. So I started kind of testing it out. Instead of quote unquote, taking a break during a workday, in the past I'd be like, okay, I guess it's time for break. Um, uh, I guess I'll like walk around the block because I know it's like good for me. I was like before and after doing like when I started testing with this tuning in or whatever I I was calling it, um, I was like, okay, start my five-minute timer. I'm going to take a break and it doesn't matter what I do. What matters is if I'm tuning into like a feeling to like a sense. So like I might take a break to go outside and then I just kind of look around and, and crouch on the ground. And then instantly be like, oh, that's a feeling. So I might first feel the muscles of like how it, what it feels like in my muscles and tendons to crouch down. And it, it felt like my muscles were happy to be listened to, not just to be stretched. Yes, and also maybe it just felt like they were happier for feeling listened to. 
so then maybe, you know, that only takes a few seconds. I'd go over and I'd stare at a part of the garden that was nearby, crouch in front of that. And I might like touch it, feel whatever was there. Very common. I would uh, notice a weed and I'd just stay in that. I'd pull the weed and I'd notice how different it felt to like tug slowly at it with my bare hands versus like quickly and with garden gloves, which is what I might be doing if had I put on my calendar, go weed outside for 10 minutes, I'd just be like, oh, you know, put my garden gloves on and just like, wow, weeding, which is cool. But this was different. And I noticed that there was a very much different, much more satisfying feeling to do it slowly and like really feel when the weed kind of gave way when it was like released. So satisfying. Now, I know that a lot of folks would hear all of this and say, yes, Paloma, it's called mindfulness. (laughs) But every time I tried doing mindfulness, reading about mindfulness, I just fell asleep. I I guess. What this feels like to me is taking 60 seconds to honor my evolution. Maybe another 60 seconds, right? To honor the wonder of how this body came to be able to feel this. Or sometimes just the experience of my body's movement or senses feeling just fucking good. But to be fair, this was actually a step. It was this like first little step that allowed the next step in that healing that inner sadness to be possible. I didn't know it at the time, but it was like preparing for the next step. And this next step was also introduced to me first uh, in Jenny O'Dell's book. So Jenny O'Dell, right? Not only have we lost a deep relationship with our animal bodies, she went on to argue that we have lost a deep relationship with other animal bodies. Animal bodies that we have also evolved to be in relationship with across millennia, but are now severed from. So bear with me as I try to explain this next part, because it's, I think it'll make sense. It makes sense in my head. I hope it does when I say it out loud. And I'm gonna take a drink of water because that's where we're at. Okay. So the book introduced to me one indigenous worldview. There's obviously many, but one of these uh, indigenous worldviews that says that one of the ways in which Western Europe kind of centric societies seem a little off 
is that they don't truly see humans as animals. Case in point, uh, a few weeks ago, I was on a hike with my friend's kids. And I said something like, oh, yeah, well, you know, um, humans aren't the only animals that do da 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 da. I, I don't even know what I was saying. But I was saying something like, oh, yeah, other animals do this thing that we do. And the kid, one of the kids interrupted me and said, wait, what? And so I started repeating myself and he said, no, 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 wait, we're animals? And so I was like, oh, right. You don't know you're an animal. Like you haven't gotten to that like high school biology class or I don't know when like they're like, yeah, we're animals. I've learned this is pretty typical of kids in Western societies. So I was like, yeah, we're totally animals. Uh, so I shared with them one of these new facts that uh, he, he essentially was like really not liking this idea. So let's put a pin in that for a second because maybe also helpful is around this time I learned that, you know, something like 60 something percent of our bodies, this, like the cells in our body aren't human DNA. Like the majority of the cells in our body are technically not human DNA. They're bacteria, microbes. And these bacteria, these microbes, they're not just like coincidentally inside of us or on us. They're not just like, oh, it's so gross. They're just all over us. They kind of are us. And that the more we learn about them, the more that we realize they make our moods possible. They help our organs work correctly. They make us function as humans. So not only are we genetically incredibly similar to other animals, we are, you know, ourselves like really a forest of creatures. So after learning this, I couldn't help but see myself as this like, you know, when I was like walking through the world, I, I like visualize myself as this huge like, walking forest, this ecosystem just like full of thousands of creatures moving through the world going to the grocery store, you know? And I mean, just scientifically, that is a more accurate description of what I am and technically what you are too. So back to this kid, right? Who I'm like, yeah, we're totally animals. The fact that he was not really vibing that fact. <laughs> I think a lot of Western Euro societies feel similarly at the idea that we are very much not just like other animals and that we are animals and that we're actually just like forest of creatures, these moving ecosystems full of creatures. This is where um, two folks can, came in really handy in reading their work. One was uh, Viola Cordoba or Viola Cordoba, if you're more of an English speaker. And Robin Wall Kimmerer, I hope I'm 
saying her name right. Because they, they're the ones that introduced me to this uh, theory that maybe Western kind of Eurocentric societies, maybe they don't like to think of humans as animals because conveniently it makes it easier to believe that humans are more valuable than other creatures. So let me read first from Robin Wall Kimmerer. This is from her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. I think it's page, yes, page nine. In the Western tradition, there is a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, the human being on top, the pinnacle of evolution the darling of creation, and the plants at the bottom. But in native ways of knowing, human people are often referred to as, quote, the younger brothers of creation, end quote. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus the most to learn. We must look to our teachers among the other species for guidance. They teach us by example. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had time to figure out things, figure things out. Uh, Robin adds <clears throat> that, quote, as our human dominance has grown, we have become more isolated, more lonely. She talks about in this book how she grew up um, learning the names of plants and animals that were around her and that she couldn't imagine what it's like to go through life not being able to call out to your neighbors, i.e. to the birds and creatures around you. She says that it sounds that experience of growing up without that knowledge, it sounds scary, disorienting, like being lost in a foreign city every day. So when I was reading this, I again started crying. And I recognized it as very similar tears as the tears <laughs> I cried when I read, um, or rather heard, uh, David White's poem, Everything is Waiting for You. So this is around the time when I just stopped and just felt this new kind of confusion. <laughs> On the one hand, I had absolutely grown up in a culture that taught me, you know, not explicitly, but definitely implicitly, that humans were the pinnacle of evolution, the most advanced creature, as if evolution was one singular line that moves from left to right only, and we are always on the right. And so, because of this, it makes sense that we are more valuable we're more important than any other creature. 
on the one hand, it felt just unquestioned. But on the other, when I read, really when I listened to David White talk about how if we're in nature and we're always in nature, there's always living things around us besides humans. When we're in nature, we are not alone. When I heard Robin Wall Kimmerer talk about that maybe we think we're alone and we feel lonely because we deny other creatures a place, an equal place, what these authors were saying, if I had to put them in quotes, right? Like what they were saying was your unshakable sadness. It started when you placed yourself in dominance over other creatures. And by doing this, you severed yourself. You severed yourself from an ancient, ancient relationship. But though you gain dominance or a sense of dominance, in so doing, you left yourself isolated. An eternal refugee of your own making. When they said things like this, it felt like a bell being rung inside of me. It felt so deeply true. <sighs> so, <sighs> okay, the science, the psychology obsessed person in me, it was reading this and being like, nah, fuck, what? Because like, we are, right? the most important creature because um, our brains, um, okay, because we have language, wait, shit, like so does every whale and mushroom. Okay, because we, shit, I don't know. Crap, wait, what just happened to my brain? So while my intellectual science brain was splitting and like in half, just <laughs> this other part of me was just crying. Crying those tears when you finally get to say a thing that you hadn't said before that needed to get heard. In Spanish, I'm really fond of the word desahogar. It means to undrown. That's that feeling, those kinds of tears. Except I hadn't been the one saying anything. I was just learning. So, you know, imagine me in my office reading these books, just crying. Like, like that coaching client. Feeling the sun on her arm. Just crying. After that, as I kind of moved through my days, my body started feeling different in that not only was I tuning into the senses that all along I had, and so, you know, engaging with what more and more I realized was this vibrantly sensual, physical world around me, but I started using those senses to notice the creatures around me differently. 
Jenny O'Dell, in her book, uh, she talks about how she became a bird watcher or say a bird noticer, because she points out most of the time you hear a bird first before you see it, if you ever see it. And so I too just started listening, noticing the crows, the pigeons, the bees. I started noticing that the crows and the bees the pigeons were probably the same ones, you know, around my house, especially, they're probably the same ones every day. And that all along, I presumed they were different. Like today, this must be a different crow than yesterday, because why? They probably were. Absolutely, actually. <laughs> my neighbors. And so without intellectually thinking about it, I started just naturally feeling less lonely. So let's pause there. Feel free after this. Maybe don't, don't put it away or go on to the next podcast or song. Don't quite yet divert your attention instantly to the next distraction. Maybe take five minutes. Feel free to start a timer just to ease your mind. Five minutes to listen instead of to media, to listen to creatures that might be near you. What sound are they making? What are they up to? And We'll pick up from there. Okay, till next time.